Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Natalie Nicole Dressel. I was there when she had spinal stenosis. I was there when she got both of her hips replaced. I was there for the haunting. I was there for her brief Vicodin addiction. I was telling that to my therapist, and she stops me and goes, did you just say haunting in there somewhere? Now here's the show. Hello, once again. As usual, I must warn you all that this year's Halloween show is very, very scary. And those of you with young children may want to send them off to bed. Oh, my. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is a pro source karaoke band behind me now doing werewolves of london because it is our scary stories 11 episode our annual halloween episode that we love so dearly Now, we used to give subtitles to these scary story episodes. You know, after the colon, it would be called Eek, Ick, Ack, Arg, Yikes, (laughs) Zoinks. (laughs) But I think we should retire that because uh, there might only be 10 words in the English language that uh, express, oh my gosh, I'm so scared in only a syllable or two. Now, as always, the ways that these stories are scary are going to be very varied all over the map. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Natalie Nicole Dressel, a story that she shared at our show out there in Los Angeles. Before that, a story from Jill Heinerth, who you can find at intotheplanet.com. And before both of them, we're going to hear from Oscar Sagastume, who you can find at oscarsagastume.com. Here he is now at, again, the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a story we call Stalker. So, 
Uh, I was not always the handsome, debonair ladies man that you see before you. Uh, But in high school, I was very awkward. I was into comic books and musicals. And the latter made everyone think that I was gay. And this was the late 90s. So uh, comic books, musicals, and being gay were not cool. Um, So when a lady lady was starting to pay attention to me, it was interesting. Uh, She was tall and beautiful. She had a dancer's body. She had these really dark eyes. And she had this like... (laughs) favorite part about her was this like wavy hair right and then she hated to deal with it she used to keep it up in the bun and whenever i saw her i would say rapunzel rapunzel let down your hair (laughs) she put down her hair she hated that um but we started dating right surprise to everyone um and as the days turned to weeks and the weeks turns to months i started thinking about how beautiful she was and how she was going to leave me I got so scared of it ending, right? Our song, or like our song, because we were teenagers, our song was Always and Forever by Luther Vandross. And I was worried that our relationship was going to be brief and fleeting. So I broke up with her. I was going to break up with her, but I didn't know, I couldn't tell her how I felt, because that's not what you did when you were kids, right? So I decided to lie to her and tell her that I was seeing somebody else. Uh, And so I did. I told her I was seeing somebody else, and I had my best friend back me up on it. She did not take it well. She went over to my best friend's house, and he told her that I was seeing someone else, and so she slept with him to get back at me, and then slept with another friend of mine. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, I found out about it, and then I bumped into her, and she walked up toward me like very... like. Um, uh, brash, you know, like she had won something. Like it wasn't a game. Like she came up and she was like, "Oh, you know, I slept with your friends and I got back at you, and you know, and you know, I won and whatever." And I was so upset, I didn't know what to say to her except the truth, which I had lied to her that there was no one else. And I was like, "There's no one else. I cared about you. I was just scared you were going to leave me." And I remember looking into her eyes and all of that sort of anger and sort of righteousness that she had about getting back at me just melted away and she started bawling and I started crying and we just, you know, went away from each other. And so when she started calling me incessantly to apologize and leaving me messages and paging me, it was the late 90s, by the way, and paging me to call her back and tell me how much she loved me and all this other stuff and she was wrong, I just ignored her because I didn't know what to say. Like, what are you supposed to say? Like, I'm sorry, I lied to you and it's okay that you slept with two of my friends to get back at me? I... And so my dad had to block her number. And again, the 90s, not an easy task. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know, I just, I was hoping that she'd forget about me. One day I came home with my father, because I was living with my parents at the time, because I was 17 years old. Um, we came home and the door to our condo was slightly ajar. And we lived in a shitty neighborhood, so we never did that on purpose. And as we're walking toward the front door, I can hear music. And the song, as I open the door, is always and forever. And I look down and I notice that there are rose petals leading to my room. And my father taps me on the shoulder and says, be careful, mijo, and then pushes me in. (laughs) So now I'm in front of my father. And I'm walking toward my room to where this 
love song is playing and I'm following these rose petals and I get to my door and I open the door and there are candles everywhere or rose petals everywhere and there is Rapunzel laying on my bed naked and she says I'm ready for you I, I don't know what to say because mostly because my father's there and then my dad starts laughing. And Rapunzel opens her eyes, turns around, and picks up her clothes, puts it on, starts, and runs out the door. And as she's getting out the front door, my dad realizes she, he should probably call the cops. I'm horrified. I'm scared. Like, this is, this is like a very big intrusion. She literally broke into my house and was in my room. And my dad is trying not to laugh. And he hangs up the phone. And I go, Dad, why, why are you laughing? And he's like, Mijo, I thought you were gay. <laughs> Um, and I'm going to be honest with you. Like, it, yeah, it, the, the intrusion was terrifying. She broke into my house. I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on there. But I was flattered, which was not an emotion I thought I would have. <laughs> but I thought, like, someone that beautiful and that in love with me broke into my house <laughs> and gave herself to me. That was nice. I mean, it was nice. <laughs> I mean... My dad called the cops, and she got arrested, and she got sent to a place, and she was seeing a therapist, and there was a really good restraining order on her. Um, and, you know, I probably should have started seeing therapists then, but I didn't. And a few weeks go by, and I was invited to a party, and I decided to go to this party. And I don't know, any, even though I don't know anybody there, and so I get there, and I'm, like, wandering around, and, like, you know, I'm nervous. I'm a teenager, and I start drinking wine coolers because it's the 90s. <laughs> And I'm getting pretty drunk, and I walk into the kitchen. When I walk into the kitchen, there's this tall, dancer's body, dark, curly-haired girl in the kitchen. And I, I don't know what to, I, I don't know if it's hers. So I start walking toward her because I've been drinking. You know, Barles and James gives you courage. And <laughs> I get up to her, and she turns around, and it's Rapunzel. And I'm close enough that she reaches out and grabs my arms. But she starts apologizing immediately. I'm sorry I broke into your house. <laughs> I'm sorry I was naked when you're dead. I'm on medication. And she's just and telling me how much she loves me and sorry about sleeping with your friends. And I, I, I'm sort of like super nervous, but she's also holding me really close. And she smells good, like rose petals. <laughs> and uh, she's very beautiful, you know? And also mentioned I was a teenage boy. So when she leaned in to kiss me, I went with it. And we started making out in the kitchen. And as things are going on, there's a little voice of reason in the back of my head that says, this is probably not a great idea. And so I kind of pull away, or I pull away and I, I tell her we should slow down. Mind you, I said, slow down, not stop. <laughs> I say, we should slow down because you know, last time I saw you, the cops got involved thinking she was gonna laugh. She didn't laugh. She started trashing the kitchen start grabbing anything that wasn't nailed down and throwing it at me. And everyone in the party, like in the kitchen, because it's a big kitchen, there's people in there going, hey, hey, calm down, because there's a lot of underage drinking going on, and they don't want trouble. But pretty soon, she starts, like, really breaking things, and so someone yells out, call the cops! And that's about the time that she found the knives. She reached over, and she grabbed the kitchen knife, put both hands on it, and lunged at me. And I remember, like, grabbing her arms and looking at her and just rage-filled eyes. And I remember feeling like a pressure here. 
and like a weird tingling burning sensation but but I'm thinking oh, I stopped her and maybe the knife was dull and then somebody screams like a, a woman I'm assuming screams and then people grab her and then I realize that my shirt is wet and then I look down and there's blood all over the front of my shirt and I look up I'm because wor- I'm worried I hurt her like that was my first thought was I hurt her but it wasn't her blood, obviously. It was my blood. I was bleeding profusely from the stabbing wounds I just received. So again, the police come. And again, she gets arrested. And again, I get another restraining order on her. And honestly, I don't really hear from her, you know? So years pass. And now I'm living in Las Vegas. I've been there for a few years, and I decide I'm going to move back to Los Angeles. And over the years, I have been very careful about my online information, right? I always kept it protected, mostly because of her. And, but I decide to post something publicly on Facebook that I'm moving back to Los Angeles and blah, blah, blah. Almost immediately, she friends me on all the social media accounts I've ever had, including Friendster. <laughs> kind of associate it doesn't matter <laughs> I block everything and I'm sort of freaking out again but this time I can afford a therapist so I call one <laughs> and I move back to Los Angeles where I start doing stand-up comedy and one of the sort of rites of passage as a stand-up is you do these things called a bringer show and a bringer shows they track how many people show up and give you amount of time so if 10 people show up you get 10 minutes it's terrible um, but they write down everybody that comes in and you always know how many of your friends are going to be there and I start doing these shows, and every once in a while, there's an extra person I didn't count on. And when I ask the door guy, they just describe tall, curly hair. I don't know. And then one morning, it's early, and I'm going to work. The sun's just rising. It's one of those really brisk L.A. days, right? This, this, like, like I just want to get to my car and have a cigarette. That's all I want to do, right? Because I don't want my wife to find out I'm smoking. And I go to my car, and it's, I live in a really empty street right at the time, and like you know, I know everybody that's on that street, and I get to my car, and I realize my car door is unlocked. And I open my car door, and someone has emptied everything that was in my car, the glove compartment, my backpack with, my, with all my work stuff, and it's completely trashed, and I'm like, fuck, someone stole, like, someone stole from me. I've been robbed, but then I realize I see my wallet in there and my laptop, And then I do a quick inventory, and the only thing that's missing is dirty dry cleaning shirts that I forgot to take, like a bag full of them. And that's when I hear a car start behind me. And I turn around, and I can see the driver smiling, and it's Rapunzel. Just smiling, staring at me, and all the blood rushes out of my body. And I have to grab the door, because I think I'm going to fall over. And she just sits there staring at me and then drives away. I have a lot more than one cigarette. Uh, but I get in my car and go to work because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, am I supposed to call the cops? Am I supposed to tell my wife? I don't. Either one of those. But I'm, I'm terrified. Like, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. And uh, <laughs> a few days go by. I come home from a comedy show. And it's late at night. And I come home, I park my car, 
my head's on a swivel, right? Because I'm always, I'm like nervous. Now. Everywhere I go, I'm just keeping an eye on where I can be, you know, or where anything, any sort of danger can happen. And I'm walking out up to the front door of my house, and the porch light is on, and uh, there's a box in front of my door. It's like a shoebox. And as I'm getting closer, I can see it's decorated. Hearts, stars, some, like a child did it, you know? All these like, pretty little things, and there's words on it, but I can't make it out. And uh, I kind of like stop, and I start thinking about what I should do. I don't hear anything, and, and I walk closer, and I, I pick up the box that's the front door of my house. That's, it's just the door, and then my family. And uh, I bend over, and I, I pick up the box. It's not that heavy. It's not, it's not the weight of a dead animal or anything. And I could see the words that I saw from far away are uh, the lyrics to Always and Forever. Oh. And I, uh, I open the box. And inside the box is hair. Long, wavy, curly hair. And then I wait for the uh, flash of a gun or a knife coming in from behind, and there's nothing. The sounds of the street and my kids playing uh, in the house waiting for me to come home. And I stand out there for a few minutes, and I'm shaking, and then all of a sudden, a sense of peace comes over me. I don't know how to explain it, like... There was no, there's no way to explain it other than it was a sense of peace. And I knew that what she meant by this box of human hair that she left at my front door was that she was saying goodbye and that she was done. And I've never had a problem with her since. Thank you. It's Halloween. I'm a cave diving explorer. Now, that's pretty abstract to most people. They can't even envision that there are water-filled tunnels and spaces beneath their feet. My job is to go explore those places and to go to places where nobody has ever been before. Places that are completely void of light. Places where I have to run a thin nylon guideline and squeeze through unimaginably small spaces to get to the next giant cavernous void where I can explore and see things that are beyond your imagination. Caves are museums of natural history. These underwater caves contain evidence about global climate change. They have the remains of civilizations that are no longer on this planet. And even the bones of literal, you know, dinosaurs, you know, creatures that no longer roam on this planet. 
And I have an opportunity to literally touch the void and to go to these places that would terrify most people. And for most people, it would seem like a claustrophobic nightmare to even go inside these places where I have to rely on life support to supply my next sustaining breath. Most people call me fearless. And they think that I'm really brave for swimming through these spaces. But the truth is that I didn't learn how to face fear from going into these dark, unforgiving caves. I actually learned to face fear in another completely different experience in my life. As a young woman in university, in my third year, I moved away from campus housing to a house. And I was planning on moving in there with four other women from school. It wasn't in a great neighborhood. I mean, most students aren't able to afford a great neighborhood. In fact, at the time, the neighborhood was called the jungle. It was kind of lawless. One of the least safe places to live in the city of Toronto. But it was cheap. We could afford it. So I was the first one to move in. I had borrowed my mother's car and ferried my things from the university dorm into this two-story walk-up on a busy street in Toronto. I was going to live in the second-floor bedroom overlooking this busy street. After I'd borrowed my mom's car and done all the moving, I was just kind of excited to stay the first night in the house. The girls hadn't moved in yet. I had the only key. So I had a chance to really settle in, put in the kitchen things and, and get my bedroom kind of decorated. It was, it was rough. I mean, even in the bathroom, there were cracks in the tile where large army ants were crawling in and out of these holes and they seemed to be pitching these large chunks of plaster into the bathtub every time I turned around. My room, I don't know, it might have been an attic at some point. It might have been an apartment. There was a, there was a big counter in there with a, a sink and um, creaky wooden floor. And it was perfect for me, an artist. I could set up my drafting table and my bed and this bookshelf that I'd made like every other college kid does with a couple of bricks and a few planks of wood my textbooks on. I had a few posters on the wall. I think I remember Pink Floyd the wall (laughs) on the wall. Not much in terms of decor, but it was going to work. And it wasn't too far from the uh, subway station, just a few blocks away. I've faced a lot of really scary situations as a cave diver. I've been inside an iceberg in Antarctica, trapped because the flow picked up and was so strong that we were fighting our way to get out. I've dived underneath the Sahara Desert, underneath the Ural Mountains in Siberia, in places that would terrify most people. But one of my closest calls was in a very small cave when I guided a scientist into a place that's about equivalent to slithering underneath the kitchen chair in your house. In fact, it's even shorter. 
It's only a little bit taller than my helmet in places. And we had to pass through this small space in order to get a critical sample for her work. I guided her through two restrictions. Places that are so tight that you're squirming in between the rock. Literally scraping your shoulders against the ceiling with clay mud on the floor. The third restriction was the smallest and we made it through okay and got our sample work done. But when we turned around, something happened. She snagged our guideline, that thin nylon rope that leads us all the way to safety. And in turning around, the visibility was obliterated from the silt. She'd stirred it up with her fins and even just trying to rotate in place. It was inevitable. I was expecting to not be able to see, and I already had my hand around the guideline. But now I had my hand on her ankle, and she was moving the wrong way, away from the guideline. I guess she'd lost contact and gotten entangled in some old lines that were buried in the silt beneath the floor. And as she moved laterally, I was stretching my arm, and she was getting further and further away from the guideline. I'm holding on to the guideline. It's getting totter and totter. I'm holding on to her ankle with my left hand, and then suddenly I feel it. Ping. The guideline broke. So the first night, I climbed into bed, my mattress on the floor and a big heavy comforter wrapped around me for comfort. And it was home. I was really cozy. But in the middle of the night, I woke up. Startled. I had heard this bang something downstairs. I wasn't sure. You know, was it, was it a dream? Was it, I don't know. I just, I woke up and I sat straight up in bed and then it slowly came to me that there was someone in the house. I had the only key. So who could it be that was now rifling through the drawers in the kitchen downstairs? hear the creak of the drawer open and even this person fingering through the cutlery. It was creepy. I thought, oh my god. Is it our landlord? Is he is he snooping around because there's no car in the driveway? What the hell is going on? I didn't even have a phone connected. I couldn't even jump out the window of the second story for fear that I'd land right in traffic. Not to mention the fact that the window seemed to be completely painted shut. My first reaction was natural, like anyone would do. I I pulled that comforter right up over my head and thought I'll hide. As soon as he sees that there's somebody home, he'll run away. And I thought, no, this guy has no fear. He's walking around downstairs and just going through every room, every door, every drawer in this creaky old house. I was forced into a situation where I had to make a choice, like hide, and God knows what would happen, or or do something. Now I'm holding the bitter end of a guideline in my hand. It's broken. I'm in zero visibility. My dive buddy 
is attached to me, my left hand grabbing onto her body as she's now panicking. She's that person beneath the comforter in that bedroom space in my house, panicking beneath the covers, trying to figure out what to do next. And I'm yelling, don't panic, just breathe, hold on. And we're in a crisis. She is the cork in the bottle containing my life. And if I can't get her to calm down and get her back into a space that she can fit in, we're both going to die in this water-filled cave beneath your feet. In my head, the chattering monkeys wanted to start. Literally, your emotions want to take control. Your heart wants to race. Your breathing wants to go out of control. But there's no room for that when the shit hits the fan. So I kept concentrating on her and on patching that guideline. And eventually, I had to let go of her and fix our line, tie into it, and help her reorient herself back out of the cave. At some point, she was facing me. I was tied into the guideline with a reel, trying to reorient her back to face the exit, and then I lost her in the silt. Now it was just me I had to worry about. But I couldn't leave her behind. She's my diving partner. That's a pledge we make, not just for self-rescue, but to rescue our partner. So I chose to retreat back into the cave, further into that tiny, squeezy space, until I was certain I was not leaving her behind. I didn't want to use my voice. I didn't want him to know that I was a woman. I was terrified about what would come next. But I threw off that comforter and I got up and I started first gingerly walking around. I thought if he could hear the creaks of my feet on that rugged wooden floor that he would realize someone was upstairs and he would leave. But this man had no fear. He had no fear. I walked with heavier and heavier footsteps until I was stomping on the floor, thinking, listen, um, there's someone upstairs. Get out, get out. But he didn't. He kept snooping around the house until I realized he was now coming up the stairs, one creaky wooden step at a time. The only thing separating me from him was now this corrugated accordion style like sliding door that had probably been built in the 60s. It hung on this fragile track and he was on the other side. Outside my door there was a closet, another bedroom, and a bathroom. And he methodically chose to search through each of those places first. First, he was in Debbie's bedroom. She hadn't even moved in yet, but I could hear him creeping around. Then he moved to my closet, 
closet outside that accordion door. I could hear him step inside. Do you know that the sound of metal coat hangers on a steel rod just sounds like fingers on a chalkboard? He was scraping one hanger at a time along this rod and searching through the fabric of my clothing. What was he looking for? Was he trying to build a picture of the woman on the other side of the door? How big was I? I was a woman. There were dresses hanging in there, and he was going through each one of them. When he was done with the closet, he moved to the bathroom. I actually heard him rustle the shower curtain, open the medicine cabinet above the sink, and then even carefully lift the lid off the porcelain toilet, scraping that porcelain along the toilet tank. It, it was terrifying. That scratching sound still creeps me out today. What was he looking for? And then it was a standoff. Me inside the bedroom, absolutely trembling with fear. My heart beating so hard, I thought it would leap outside of my chest. And him on the other side of this fragile accordion door. I could actually see that his head was taller than the little gap at the top of the hanging door. And me, I had grabbed exacto knives off my drafting table, locked them inside my fingers, and crouched down into a fetal position in the corner, just panting. I was so sure he could hear my heart and certain he would hear my breathing. It was terrifying. I could smell his sweat. It was like street and rage all mixed together. Why was he doing this to me? In cave diving, when we're looking for someone and we've lost the visibility, we go further into the cave until we hit clear water. Because once you hit clear water, you know nobody has been there. And I did just that. And then on my way out, I started to search methodically, patching that guideline until it was continuous back to the entrance and looking for her in every nook and cranny on the ceiling, feeling in places where I couldn't see. Now one of my regulators, my breathing apparatus, is totally full of clay, and it's now malfunctioning and just spewing air. The only way to breathe from that tank was to turn on the tank valve every time I had to breathe, and turn it off in between breaths so I didn't waste gas. I was wearing two tanks, one on each side, but I chose to use that malfunctioning tank first. I wanted to save the good one in case I ran into my partner. She might need gas too, and I needed to save every breath. And then the moment of reckoning came. He literally ripped that accordion door right out of the track and came into my room. 
I turned on the drafting table light and I flashed it straight into his eyes and yelled, Who are you? I thought, my God, is this the landlord? Like, who could it possibly be? And then he came after me. And I had a choice. I could let happen whatever would happen, or I could defend myself. I had already considered throwing one of the bricks from my bookshelf at him, but if I threw a brick, it would be his to beat me with. So I lunged at him with these two exacto knives and swiped with my right hand right across his chest, screaming the whole way. I saw his enraged eyes. I saw his dilated pupils. I saw his face dripping with sweat. And I ripped down the front of his chest. I don't know whether it was fabric or flesh that I felt in the resistance of these sharp blades, but he jumped back in shock, looked down at his chest, and then up at me, and he laughed. It was like a horror movie come true. He laughed. And then he stopped. He took a second look at me. Stepped backwards. Turned around. And slowly walked out of my room. It was a methodical search. Step by step through the blackness. Until... In a side passage, I saw some of her scientific gear discarded. I had to search there, too. It was terrifying. Was she dead? Had she run out of gas? Did she make it to the exit? At that point, I didn't know. I just needed to know that I had to make every effort to save us both. I fell back onto the floor, just shaking, terrified, crying, sweating. It was like every pore in my body just opened up. And he just walked out of my room. And I thought, down the stairs. But I wasn't certain. Slowly, I looked over at my alarm clock and saw the numbers flipping over. It was about 2 a.m. I needed to get out of the house. I needed to get to the closest place of comfort that I could get to. To me, that seemed like it would be that subway station down the street. But first I had to escape the house. And I wasn't sure he was gone. I got up, again choosing to face that fear. And room by room, closet, bathroom... Debbie's bedroom, the stairs, and then a run right out the front door and down the road all the way to that subway station in my pajamas. I smashed on that front door, exacto knives in hand, until somebody let me in and called the police. But I couldn't even speak until the police got there. And so methodically, I continued my search all the way out of the cave. Finally, coming around that last corner, while my heart was filling with dread because I hadn't found her, there she was in the entrance. She'd found her way out 
She'd surfaced and called an emergency and come back down to wait for me. Wait for me so that I knew as soon as possible that she'd made it. But to my friends, to those people coming to that emergency call, I'd already been dead to them for 73 minutes. And that's an eternity to your friends. In the cave diving community, when somebody is overdue from a cave dive, we think the worst. We're literally responding to a potential body recovery, and that's exactly what was happening. It was a sobering experience. Some of my friends wrote emails and letters, things that they might have said at my eulogy at my funeral. And that causes one to reflect on what they do. I survived my face off with that intruder that night, but I carried that fear with me for years, waking up in the middle of the night in a terror once again, until I decided that I could choose a different future. I couldn't change what happened that night. I could only change what I did moving forward. And that choice to move forward and to really understand how to embrace fear helped inform me as a cave diver in one of the most dangerous things that you could possibly do. But for me, cave diving is important. The science is important. What we were doing inside that cave that day was important. Being inside the largest iceberg in recorded history is important to understand climate change. Mapping and surveying where these water conduits lay beneath our feet is important science. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I'm not just out there for thrills. I'm out there because I think that what I do means something, means something to you know, understanding our water resources, understanding civilizations like the Mayans that are no longer with us, that have left their remains in these caves. This, to me, is important. And it's important to me to learn about how to deal with this fear so that I can be successful when the worst possible thing happens. These giant problems, like getting out of a cave or surviving a burglar can seem all too much. We don't know how it's all going to end. But we know what the next best possible step forward is in life. And sometimes that means stepping into the darkness. Hi, everybody. Let's get into it, okay? All right, so um, the phone call where I came out as transgender to my mom, it did not go very well. And uh, the email that she sent me a couple days later was pretty much the end of our relationship. On the phone call, I'm like, oh, Mom, I'm, uh, I'm transgender. I'm transitioning. 
Uh, I know that this might be hard for you to accept. I know dad wouldn't like it one bit if he were still alive. And she goes, well, if your dad were alive, he would have killed you. So I, I said, well, I'm, I guess it's good he's still dead then. <laughs> and I didn't get a laugh. Um, that phone call didn't end well. And then a couple days later, I got an email where after uh, several paragraphs of her telling me why her brand of homophobia and transphobia was okay, she ended it with, my mind is closed, but my arms are open. Anyway, newly orphaned, uh, newly transgender, uh, newly on hormone replacement therapy, so like estrogen's hitting me like a freight train. Um, kind of thought it would be a good idea to get into therapy, uh, so I did. And uh, I love my therapist. She's, she, her name is Linda. We have a lot in common. In our first session, she made a Lord of the Rings Galadriel quote, so I'm like, you get me? Um, so a couple sessions in, I'm talking about how hurt I was by that whole thing, because my mom and I loved each other. Like, we had been best friends. I would blow off plans with friends to stay home and watch movies with her and make fun of it, like Mystery Science Theater 3000. Even when I was little, I have memories of us playing Ghostbusters together where she would pretend to be Janine and be like, Ghostbusters, oh, yeah, we've got a call. Oh, I'll send him, he'll go bust a ghost for you. Like, <laughs> so much love in our life, and I thought that our love was unconditional, and that's how I acted, because I had been there for her through everything. I was there when her first husband died. I was there when her second husband died. I was there when she had spinal stenosis. I was there when she got both of her hips replaced. I was there for the haunting. I was there for her brief Vicodin addiction. I was telling that to my therapist, and she stops me and goes, did you just say haunting in there somewhere? <laughs> And uh, I was like, uh, yeah, I'm, that's embarrassing. I'm not, I don't really like to tell this story unless I have a beer and I'm like around a campfire or anything. But yeah, when I was growing up, my house was haunted a bit. And um, she, I just, I don't like talking about it because I'm afraid people won't believe me. And she goes, don't worry about that. Please tell me about it. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Uh, well, for me, it all started with a pair of boots. When I was little, my dad died of cancer, and it sent my mom into, like, a hardcore depression where she was crying all the time. She needed to put, like, a Bible on her chest to breathe, and she was just, like, absent for months. So my sister and I are just trying to get along the best we can. You know, one night we're watching Full House in our jammies and just trying to pretend we're tanners and not in the family we're in. And out of nowhere, out of the sudden, bam, the footrest of the lazy boy chair my late dad's chair, kicked out all on its own. And there were two work boots that were right in front of it. And the way that it kicked them, they kind of did like this synchronized flip together, like dancers, and they landed perfectly on the soles like a trick. And my sister and I were just kind of like, that's neat, weird. My mom started screaming. She started panicking. I don't know if you've ever been a child in a room where uh, your parent is having like a panic attack, but you have like no idea what to do. You try to copy what you've seen adults do when children cry, like rub their back and be like, shh, it's okay. And so we're like nine and six telling my mom, it's gonna be okay, but we have no idea what's even wrong, really. And she goes, kids, I have to tell you something. I know I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I have no one to talk to anymore, and I have to tell somebody, um, since your dad died, some stuff has been happening around the house. And my sister and I were like, what, what kind of stuff? She says, ghost stuff. And she goes into her room and she brings out this large yellow notebook that she'd been using to 
log the occurrences, and a page of it might have read something like, Sunday, 3 a.m., the wooden hearts hanging from ribbons on my wall slammed too hard against the wall. No windows open, no breeze. Tuesday, 5.30 a.m., the rocking chair in Emily's room has been moved right up against her bed, rocking slightly, and the troll doll in it looks like it's watching her sleep. Friday, 1.30 a.m., TV channel changes again, always from channel 3 to the religious channel. Uh, Monday noon, Ernie's brute cologne wafts very heavily through house. No doors open or windows open to produce such a breeze. So uh, needless to say, my sister and I slept in her bed that night and for a while more. And maybe because of my mom's inability to sleep alone, she got married shortly after that. Uh, She married a guy named Dan, and he kind of married into the ghosts. Uh, (laughs) Because uh, things started to elevate a little bit. Um, A while later, after he'd been there a bit, my sister and I got home from school. My parents asked, hey, did you guys rearrange the furniture in the basement at all last night when you were playing? And we're like, no, we're we're sorry. Is it messy? We'll clean it up. And they're like, no, 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 not messy per se. But um, some stuff has been moved down there. And if you guys didn't do it, then I just don't know. Um, So after a little bit of talking about it, we finally ask if we can go and look. And they're like, I don't know, but okay. And my sister and I, we were not hand-holding siblings at that moment, but we tightly held each other's hands as we walked down the stairs. And what I found in the basement, I will never forget. It's The couch had been against the wall for a million years, was pulled out and at against it at an odd sort of jagged angle. All of the VHS tapes in our cupboard were stacked like little mismatched sort of like Stonehenge figures around the floor. The coffee table was upended so that it was as tall as it could possibly be. And then another smaller end table somehow was like impossibly balanced on top of that. Like it was reaching for the ceiling, like dangerous and unnatural. And I remember my mom saying, no human mind could think of this. A while after that, It's in the evening, and my stepdad is sitting with his arm around my mom, uh, watching TV, whatever you're doing in the evening, and all out of nowhere, his arm got pulled very strongly behind the love seat, and he couldn't pull it up. My mom thought he was joking at first, but he started to, like, kind of scream out in pain, and she began to panic, but kind of got a calm head and started to count, one, two, three, and they pulled his arm out from behind it, and when they did, they revealed bright red, shiny human teeth marks right by the elbow. He, he wishes he would have known about that before he married in. Um, in the summertime, a little bit after this, uh, after dinner, we all decided we were gonna go for a swim. So I went to the restroom to change into my suit, and uh, they're like, no, don't change, go to your room to change. We need this room for some reason. So I'm like, okay, so I go to my bedroom and I open the door, and something is wrong. And I know it before I even can see it, it just I don't, it feels wrong, and then my eyes finally find the problem. In the center of my bed is a large black hunting knife just stabbed right into the center of the mattress. And it just takes you a minute of looking at it for you to register, because it doesn't go together. It's like finding a handgun in a dollhouse, you know? Like, that's my bed. Why, I don't know where that knife is from. I've never seen that knife before in my basement or my shed. That's a brand new knife. Where did it come from? Why is there a knife where my heart goes? And I don't really remember much after that. I I, I walked out and just pointed. My parents got it. They took me to my granny's house. And as far as what they told me, they they dropped the knife into Lake Michigan off the edge of Pure Marquette. I look up at my therapist and go, 
<laughs> so my house is haunted. Um, <laughs> and I'm kind of afraid that she won't believe me or she'll think I'm like really crazy. Uh, but instead she's so into it and she has like a million questions. Uh, she's, <laughs> she's like, how many instances were there? Did you ever tell your church? Like, what was the time frame? What are we talking here? And she's very factual, asking me all of these questions. And she finally asked me, where were you in the room when your stepdad got bit? And that stumped me. I had a blank there. And so we stopped and we breathed and we thought about it. And I remembered I was not actually in the room when that happened. I had I'd been told about it the next day. My mom took a picture of the bite mark and showed it to us and told us about it in detail, put it in the logbook, and we had talked about it so much that eventually you just start telling it like you were there and I'd forgotten. And that sort of led into me thinking that I didn't really see anything with the basement. The furniture had just been kind of left there for us to find. The only thing I really saw was those boots. But now that I'm thinking about that, Dad's chair had been broken for a while. That foot stand would pop out even before he even died. So what are we really talking about here? And my therapist goes, well, does that make you rethink this at all? And I'm like, well... If you're thinking that it could have been my stepdad, we've thought about this and we've gone over it. Like, there's a lot of things he couldn't do. Some of it happened before he even showed up, and you can't bite yourself on the elbow there. And my therapist goes, no, I wondered if you'd ever thought that your mom was doing this. And my world kind of broke apart. Like, why would she do that? She loves me. For what reason? What would her motive be? And slowly the pieces just fell into place. Like... I can now just see her in the basement arranging that furniture and like not stopping till it's just right. And I can see her showing us the picture and saying, you can't even bite yourself there on the elbow. I never thought she bit him and posed him for that picture. Um, Now, thinking about her stabbing the knife into my bed, that's the one that I have the hardest time accepting. But then I remembered a memory where I was asking or or begging for them to replace my sheets or my mattress or my bed because I was still being made to sleep in the bed with all of the knife slits and the comforter and the sheets and the fitted sheet and the mattress. And some mornings if I couldn't stay on the corner, I'd wake up with my hand touching it and I would just scream. And they said, you got to grow up. We don't have any money to take care of that. So (laughs) my choices now are I was abused by the person I thought loved me unconditionally, or ghosts are real and have fucked with me personally. (laughs) I didn't know what to do. I was on the fence. I was trying to prove it. Someone finally goes, hey, if you had a haunting in your house and you had kids, would you hide it from them so they weren't afraid, or would you show them every damn thing? I think it's fake. (laughs) My house had never been haunted. I was the one who had been haunted. And so there was no rest for me. There was no moving forward. It was very limbo. I had no way to talk to her because we were already not talking about me being transgender. And I had no way that even if we were talking, that she would tell me the truth ever. So I started to break down. I felt disconnected from my body. I would spill my guts to any half-empathetic Uber driver. They've heard this story around town. Ask around. I'm sure they've talked. And on top of that, I was dealing with a lot of anger, and that's not something I was used to at all. It made me very uncomfortable. It felt like being possessed, almost. Hating her was really hurting me. (laughs) But how do you forgive somebody who not only will never apologize, but kind of acts like you owe them an apology? Like, how do you forgive those people? Jesus, 
even makes you ask for forgiveness, and that guy forgives everybody. So I had to find a way to exercise her from me. And the way that I found was meditation and theater. Through meditation, I found out that it wasn't really me that she was doing this to. That sickness wasn't her. She would have done that to any child that she had. It wasn't me doing something to deserve it. And through theater, I found closure uh, because I, I wrote a play, a memory play, that I got to star in and, and confront these memories. And every night I got to say, Mom, I, I love you and I forgive you and I can't have you in my life anymore. I wrote the words, I forgive you, before they were true. And then I said them every night on stage until they became true. <laughs> that's how I got out of limbo, and that's how I exercised mom's ghost, which is ironic because I did not think I'd still be playing Ghostbusters with my mom at this point in my life. I know that my life is better without her in it, but I, I can't help but still love her, and I, and I sometimes wonder, did she go on a long journey like this to let me go? Or is she still living in a haunted house with all of her demons and the ghost of me? Thank you. This is Risk. This is On and On behind me now. And we just heard from Natalie Nicole Dressel, who you can find on Twitter at Natalie N. Dressel. Before that, a story by Jill Heinerth that we call Stepping into the Darkness that was edited by our audio editor, John LaSala. And before that... An interstitial by our good friend and Risk fan, Robert Fulham. Whenever I talk about Stamps.com, I really wonder who still does go to the post office. Stamps.com brings the post office right to you. There's no need to interrupt your days, especially during the holidays when the post office is extra busy. 
That's why you need Stamps.com that brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. We use it at risk and the story studio, and we've always loved it. There's no risk with our promo code RISK. You get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now, we have two final stories for our episode today. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Elise Delmas. But before that, Cindy Freeman. Cindy is a coach for our team here, a storytelling coach. And she is a faculty member of ours over at thestorystudio.org. You can find Cindy on Twitter at CindyFreeman1. And here she is now at the Risk Live show in New York City with a story we call Time to Go. years old and it is 1988 and I am at a, uh, a dive bar uh, for a Halloween party. I work at this bar. I love this bar. Uh, I work in the basement of the bar in an, actor, an interactive murder mystery, uh, which is a bunch of sort of improv actors and we, you know, play crazy characters and then the audience has to guess which one of us is a murderer and... Um, I'm 24 and I'm making most of my living as a performer. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm making it. I'm so excited. And I love the cast. The cast is super cool. I love them so much that I never want to leave. And uh, luckily at this bar, you know, um, we can drink till four in the morning uh, because bars close in Boston at two, but uh, they just let us stay as long as we want. So uh, we're partying hard, we're having fun, it's Halloween, and the bar staff has told us that, you know, for Halloween, we want you to come to the party. In fact, everyone in the cast, you guys get to drink for free. So we are getting drunk. We're having a good time. The woo-woos are flowing because that's the big drink of 1988. And um, my boyfriend is on his way, and I'm really not looking forward to him showing up and ruining the mood. (laughs) I really don't want him showing up because one of the cast members actually did a bit of an intervention on me earlier in the evening. Um, They're all a little bit older than me, and so they think of me as a little sister, and one of them just kind of was in my face, and it's like, what is wrong? with your boyfriend (laughs) and what is wrong with my boyfriend I I told him which I'll tell you was that his mom had actually passed away earlier in the year he was very depressed and he was in mourning and uh, it was coming out 
in a way that made him kind of mean-spirited. And this weird thing that had it, when I first started, started dating him, he was this nerdy, he was a stand-up comic and he was this nerdy kid who had every comedy album ever created. He wore nothing but t-shirts and they were all like ironic with jeans and sneakers. And he had traded that look in for three piece expensive suits that he could not afford. And they were about $400 a pop. And he kept buying suits after suits. And I don't know if it was that he felt that he was a loser or then he had to be the kind of success his mother could be. I didn't know what was driving it, but he couldn't afford the rent for the suits. And we were getting into arguments where I was like, you either got a budget and not buy so many suits or maybe get a part-time job. And he would just scream, this is you not supporting my vision. Like you got this is you just don't believe in me and I you know and I I fine I was fine to carry him for a little while you know what it's he was going through something I didn't quite get it I was basically waiting it out until my real boyfriend showed back up and I kind of knew he was in there somewhere and so he shows up after a comedy gig I'm like how'd it go fucking you know which is what he always does and he orders a beer and I drink another shot um, and uh, there's a band playing <laughs> the band at this place was all these rockers from the 1950s who were still doing it and they had canes but they would rock away they were adorable so they're playing and you know we're going and dancing and stuff like that and then Mike shows up now, Mike is one of my favorite characters in this bar. Um, he's uh, African-American. He's really skinny. I would love to say he wasn't on the cocaine diet, but basically everybody in that bar, it was the 1980s, was on the cocaine diet. Uh, so he's really skinny. He's really wired all the time. And he is uh, the handyman there, and he gets paid in booze. So he's always there and he's always buying drinks because he's got a tab that is always open. And so he shows up and he's been saying to us for weeks, you know, Halloween is my night. You guys are the star downstairs. When you have your show on Halloween, I'm going to be the star. Wait till you see that costume. He's been saying this for weeks, and he shows up as the Grim Reaper, white on his face, black on his eyes, and a hood, and a plastic sickle, and uh, he actually looks pretty good. I'm like, good job, Mike. He goes, I told you, Halloween's my night, but wait till you see the stunt I got planned. We're like, okay, Mike, there you go. And I'm laughing, and I look over at my boyfriend, Matt, and he's like, who's that loser? I'm like, Shh, he's one of my friends. Don't worry about it. So um, the music stops, the band takes a break, they put on the pipes on music, and I can see uh, Mike has grabbed a chair and he's uh, dragged it out and there's this beam, he's looking on the beams on the ceiling. Uh, he's got a noose around his neck. And the noose, it's not that long, but he's got it in his hand and the uh, owner of the bar sees him, comes running out and I can see the arms flailing, like clearly you know, they're not doing whatever you plan on doing in my bar. And now Mike is upset, and uh, the owner is like, you know, get him some shots, get shots for everybody. And so we come back, more woo-woos for everybody. And Mike now has to go down the row and through all the cast members and all his friends, like, oh, man, I wanted to do it. Oh, man, I had this stunt. And when he gets to me and Matt, he's like, oh, I was going to do this thing that I saw 
saw Alice Cooper do in a concert where the, he was like hanging there, you know, but he wasn't really hanging. And then he lifts up his T-shirt and he's got a harness that he's made out of like recycled safety belts from cars. And it's like it's going down his jeans and, you know, clearly into the groin area. And he's like, see, there's this piece. And he pulls it out. There's a big piece of seatbelt material. And he's like, I'm going to we're going to put it on. And then I, I put the noose over and it'll look like I'm hanging, but I'm not. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Mike, that sounds really cool. And he's like, yeah, I mean, I'm, oh, man, I'll, I'll figure it out. Great. Well, at 11 o'clock, the owner, you know, leaves, and Mike is watching that door. And the second he is out, he goes to the door, he looks out, you can see him, like, looking, waiting for the guy to get into his car. And he comes back, and he just suddenly screams over the music, it is showtime, right? And he comes out, and he grabs the chair, and a friend of his grabs another chair. So he's got his chair, and he's on it, and his friend, like, pulls the, the seatbelt material from behind and strings it to the beam, and he throws the, the noose over the beam. And then he says, all right, kick the chair. And his friend goes, one, two. And the audience goes, three. And he kicks the chair and Mike drops. And he shakes like he's having a seizure. And the, the, the noose falls down. Now he's wearing a necktie. And he's shaking with a necktie. And then his head goes to the side and the tongue goes out. And we all applaud. You know, good job, good job. We're performers, we understand. So um, he's like, no, no, let's do it again. He gets back on the chair. His friend kicks it again. He's still wearing it as a necktie. It's the worst special effects I've ever seen. And we, you know, applaud. Maybe this time we're not as enthusiastic. And then he's like, let's do it again. And the bouncer comes over and says, Mike, I think, I think it's time. I think you're done. And he's like, no, 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 this is fun. This is fun. And he's like, it's not fun, Mike. Come on. It's like you did it twice. It, we had fun, but now it's over. And then he starts shaking again like he's having a seizure. The tongue comes out of his mouth, and he hangs there. And the bouncer says, come on, Mike. And he doesn't respond. And he says, Mike. And he, he still doesn't respond. And Michelle behind the bar screams, Mike. And he still doesn't respond. And then the bouncer touches his hand and he goes, trick or treat, ha ha, you know? And we're just like, geez, it, and then, there's like, you gotta come down. And he's like, no, this is fun. And it's fun for him. He's the center of attention. It is not fun for anybody else in the bar. So at this point, I'm close to Michelle, who's the bartender, and I pull her aside, and I'm like, you know, he's acting like a four-year-old. I mean, what do you do with a four-year-old? You ignore them, and they no longer get any interest out of it. And she's like, that's a good idea. We'll ignore him for a little while. So she tells the, the security guard to do this. I tell all my you know, cast members and my boyfriend, we're just going to turn our backs to him. And then we start, you know, drinking and talking and having fun and arguing with Matt, you know, because that's the only thing we ever do, when suddenly I hear this voice, and it's it's the guy who plays the detective in the improv show, or Columbo. He's still in his, like, like his jacket, and he just says, how long has he been up there? And I turn around. I don't know. I mean, I've had enough of an argument with Matt at this point to realize it's been a while. And the bouncer suddenly notices and just jumps into action. All right, Mike, we're cutting you down. And Mike doesn't respond. And he's like, come on, Mike. This isn't funny. And Mike still doesn't respond. And again, Michelle says, Mike. And he doesn't respond, and the bouncer goes, and he touches the hand, and this time there is no resistance, like there's no bones in it. And the bartender, Michelle, she's just like, Mike, Mike, I'm going to call an ambulance. And I say to her, I'm like, Michelle, this is what you're going to do. Just tell him that he will need to pay for this ambulance, because at this point, we're not even sure that he's just pulling another stunt. And she's like, yeah, Mike, if we call an ambulance, it's coming out of your pocket, not the bar's. 
He still doesn't respond. She's like, oh, God. She turns off the music. She's on the phone. Our Columbo is running out looking for real police. And everybody who knows Mike is now on the floor in the dance floor and just like, Mike, Mike, wake up, Mike. And the, the, the EMTs come pretty darn quick, and they sort of get rid of all of us. And like none of us know anything about CPR. We're all drunk. So we all kind of back up. And then the police come in. And the police, you know, they get him out on a gurney and uh, out the door and they shut the door and nobody's allowed to leave, which is exactly what we say in the show downstairs. So it's sort of like, you know, this weird moment of life imitating art and I'm sitting there as a police or talking to everybody and I'm just feeling so goddamn guilty because it was my idea to ignore him. And when the police come, you know, I'm trying to think, like, what am I going to say? And it was my idea, and, but all they want is my phone number. And I give them the number, and they get everybody's number in the bars, about 40 people. And then they leave and say, all right, everyone's free to go. And when they're gone, it's silent, and people are kind of murmuring. And then I, I look to Matt, and Matt just starts laughing. And I understand nervous laughter. I've laughed at a couple funerals myself, but this is a tough neighborhood, and, and Michelle's giving him the stink eye, and I'm like, Matt, and he's like, I just can't stop. I'm like, all right, we're going. And I throw her a 20, and I grab him by the hand, and we're gone. Now, we get out of the bar, and there is the ambulance. It has not moved on to the hospital, and it's like been at least an hour, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. And I look through the window, and they are all working on him. So Matt and I would get in a cab, and again, I am just feeling so guilty. Like, you know, that was, why did I think that was a good idea? That was possibly the worst idea. And why did anybody think this? Like, why did anybody listen to me? And as I'm sitting in that thought, Matt just says, that is just proof of Darwin's theory. Some people are too stupid to live. And I say, Matt, Mike is my friend. We get home, and he's now angry because I didn't like his joke. And I'm like, let's just go to sleep. And we go to sleep, and at 8 a.m., I'm woken up by the phone. It's the police. They want me to come in to talk to me. Um, so I grab my stuff. I, I leave Matt there. I really don't want him laughing with the police. And I get there, and they ask a lot of questions. And I, I tell them, yeah, look, look, you know, we... We, it was my idea, and I did say that, you know, we should ignore him, but it's just I didn't realize we would ignore him this long, and I don't understand what happened. And mostly what I want to know is, like, where is he so I can visit him, and, and, and how is he doing? And one of the police officers just, just looks at me, and his head kind of goes to the side, and he's like, ma'am, he's dead. And I say, what? And he said, ma'am, we wouldn't have called you in if he was alive. And I'm like, how did that, what happened? And he couldn't have hung himself. I mean, it was, it was, it was around his neck, like a necktie. And he said, no, ma'am, no, no. It was, it was that contraption he made. It, 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 as he was shaken, I guess, people said, it, it, it tightened around his rib cage. I mean, he, it tightened up, it constricted. He, could, he didn't have air for at least 10 minutes, no oxygen. I'm like, oh, my God. So he, he suffocated up there? And he's like, uh, no, he actually, uh, cause of death was a heart attack. And I thought of all the cocaine that goes on in that bar and think it's probably that I, that I didn't tell them. And I was like, so he, when did, did he die in the ambulance? They said, no, they brought him back three times. He died in the hospital. So I go home and I tell Matt and he's 
worthless. He's just like idiot and stupid people that you work with. And so I call the cast, and of course, everybody has been interviewed by the police by this time, and all we want to do is hang out with each other. So we go to a pizza joint that we all frequent. Um, nobody wants to drink, and nobody wants to eat, and I just feel so goddamn guilty. And I'm just like, I, I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, and they're trying to console me and saying, hey, we all listened to you. We all thought it was a good idea, and just don't you know, so it, it's not your fault. And then they start telling me, you know, after you left, we just kept drinking. We went to the bar across the street and we kept drinking. And one says, I don't even know how I got home. And another says, neither do I. And a third one says, I woke up in a pool of my own vomit. And I go, oh God. He goes, yeah, it's, you know what? There could have been another dead body last night. And then we start this conversation about we're, why are we so careless? I mean, we party hard. We've always partied hard, but this is the first time we're realizing maybe we party too hard. So the funeral uh, is later that week, and of course we all go, and there's his family, and uh, we all sort of like huddle together for support. And when I get to his mom, and she's this uh, African-American woman in her late 60s, I just start crumbling, and I'm just like, I, I can't even get it out. I'm just, I am so, so sorry. And I don't know what she knows, but she knows enough to take my hand. And she said, I don't want you to be sorry. I don't want anybody to be sorry. How many people tried to get him to stop? And how many times did they tell him not to do it? And he just chose to do it because it was his time to go. He was a healthy man. There was no reason for him to die that day. But God wanted him back home. I'm a religious woman. and It was his time to go. But if there's anything you get out of this, I want you kids to understand that life is short. And if you want to tribute or honor my son, he tried to show you a good time. So you have a good time. That's what he would want. You have a good life and a good time. And I went home. And when I think about that whole experience and the guilt that I still feel about that, the piece that I try to hold on to is her words. I don't know what was going through his mind as he passed away. I would hope that he simply passed out. But he was trying to show us a good time. And she's right. Life is short. And I soon after broke up with Matt. Because life is simply too short to be around people who don't know how to be kind to one another. Thank you. My stepdad was a dangerous man. No one seemed to know this except my little brother, Nick, and me. 
I don't remember him ever hurting us physically, but he controlled us through the fear of violence. We never put a toe out of place because he made it clear that pain was in store for us if we did. He controlled us through his hand, clutching a shoulder too firmly when we said something he didn't like in front of company and through looks of just pure hatred. We survived by being perfect. I was determined to keep my little brother safe, so I meticulously studied our stepdad's moods. I knew every rule to follow, and when we were perfect, he was predictable. So over time, I realized that I could control him. He kept us in line with the fear of physical violence, but I knew how to placate him. One day, when I was about nine years old, my stepdad and I were sitting on the floor playing with Nick, moving toy cars around and putting on silly voices. I looked at my stepdad to gauge his mood and he caught my eye and our eyes just locked. For the first time, he saw that I knew everything about him. I wasn't really scared of him, I was just vigilant. He saw that I had been playing the game perfectly so that he thought that he was winning. And his eyes began to just burn with rage. I already knew that he hated us, me especially, but now I saw the reality of how dangerous he would be when that hatred became too much to contain. We had to leave that day, as soon as possible, or he would kill us. Later in the day, while he was cleaning up lunch, I grabbed Nick's hand and we calmly and quietly left the house. Once outside, we needed to find help, so we started running. I knew some neighbors that would be home during the day, and we headed towards their house. The neighbor woman opened the door, and she saw our terrified faces. She said, what's wrong? What are you doing here? Did something happen? Where's your dad? Oh my god, come in and, and tell me what happened. So we told her, please, our stepdad is going to kill us. You have to help us, please. Please just hide us for a little bit. Can you call the police? Can you keep us safe from him? She was concerned and puzzled. She said, honey, your stepdad isn't going to kill you. What would make you think that? He's a good man. I pleaded with her, please, please believe us. He's not good, he's dangerous. He hates us, he's always hated us. Her husband came in from the other room to see what the noise was about. She explained the situation to him, and they exchanged a look that was knowing and slightly amused. Then someone knocked at the door. Nick and I ran into the dining room and dove under the table. We were crouched under there. My arm was around him, and he fit perfectly against my body. He didn't seem very scared. I don't know if he even really understood what was happening. His little head rested against my chest, and my heart pounded against it. I think he knew I'd protect him. I really hope he knew that. It was our stepdad at the door. So the woman said, oh, hey, what's up? He said, my kids were playing outside, and I 
kind of lost track of them. Have you seen them? She told him they hadn't, but that she'd keep an eye out and immediately let him know if they did. And then he was gone. The door was closed and my breath was rushing out of my lungs. They coaxed us out from under the table and I thanked them for hiding us. But the woman said, well, I think it'd be better if you went back to him instead of him finding you. You should go home and apologize for making him worried. Her voice was kind, but my heart sank because I realized that she would never believe us. So I told her, you're right, we'll go back. She was clearly relieved and she and her husband ushered us back out to her front door. The door closed November sun blinded us as it reflected off of the sidewalk. I remember we ran for a while, but it's all blurred together. We ended up in the front yard of a house, and we were greeted by a sweet elderly couple. The woman had rosy cheeks, silver hair, and a peaceful smile. The man, I remember, looking almost like Santa Claus, but skinny. He just radiated good cheer and he had a long salt and pepper beard. They listened to our story and they actually believed us. I felt so much relief wash over me. I finally felt safe. I trusted them to protect us. The next thing I remember is staring at the old woman as her face was frozen in a beatific smile. She was looking upward over my right shoulder. I turned around. The old man was hanging in the air over their front lawn. He was suspended in the air and I had no explanation of how or why. He also had a look of divine rapture on his face and he was looking skyward. Then I noticed there was a two-handled lumber saw hanging from his right hand. It was the length of his leg. The other handle hung next to his foot just dangling in the air. I was so confused. What is going on? Like, how is this happening? Was this even real? The old man swung the saw forward, then back, threading it between his legs. He caught the other handle behind him. The saw teeth were pointing upward, and I started to panic. I knew what was going to happen, and I didn't want this to happen. The saw blade started moving back and forth, as the old man swung his arms and the teeth snagged on the crotch of his pants and I just kept thinking no, 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 don't do this, please please, please don't do this please stop but the blade kept moving back and forth inching higher and higher in a few more strokes it began to rip through his genitals and there was blood spurting everywhere I begged just God, God, I don't want to see this. Please stop, please. Why can't I look away? And I was just frozen in place. And his face was still blissful. 
I watched in horror as he kept sawing, tearing through his bowels, and then his stomach, and then his ribcage, and blood kept pouring out and spurting everywhere, and I just wanted it to stop. I like, wanted to just look away. Please, this can't be happening. This shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't ever happen. The spell broke when he reached his collarbone, and I could finally tear my eyes away. So I looked down, and I saw Nick next to me, and I grabbed his hand, and we ran. They didn't even notice us leave. We made it to the woods at the edge of the neighborhood, and that's where he found us. We were surrounded by pine trees. Behind my stepdad, I saw a clearing in the middle distance. There was a big white house in the clearing. It was facing us, and its front was almost entirely made of windows. Someone was in that house. They would be able to see the three of us and whatever happened next. But I also knew that if someone was there, they were not going to help us. I knew this is where we were going to die. My stepdad faced me. Nick was between us. He held a pair of hedge clippers. His expression was triumphant. He said to me, I'm going to kill your brother, step over his body, and then kill you. He stabbed Nick in the stomach with the hedge clippers and pulled them back out. My brother fell backward. I watched his small body tilt toward me, and he had a look of mild shock on his face. He fell onto the pine needles. My stepdad took one step over Nick's body, and then he stabbed me in the stomach. There wasn't any pain. Instead, there was a warmth that spread from the wound to fill my whole torso. I looked up into his face. My vision started to fade at the edges. His features were set. He looked satisfied. And that was what I saw as my vision completely left, and I found myself floating in blackness. The warmth was still there. I looked down and I saw a small golden sun where my stomach used to be. It was the only source of light I could see. And I curled my body around it and floated away. And when I look in my window, 
so many different people to be That it's strange So strange You got to pick up every stitch You got to pick up every stitch You got to pick up every stitch That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Donovan behind me now, and we just heard from Elise Delmas. Now, that story is called Nightmare, because that's exactly what it is. Elise was incredibly struck by the dreams that she had in her childhood. She was only nine years old and still vividly, vividly remembers that one. She doesn't even have a stepfather. He's just a monster from her dream world. And that one was edited by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, who also did the interstitial that came before it. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Keep track of us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Risk Show or on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at the Kevin Allison. And don't forget, we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. That's one-on-one training, video courses, in-person workshops, and corporate workshops, all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs> <laughs>